Hey, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And this is <laughs> the third, is it the third or fourth I time? I have lost count. I can't I even remember. The, fourth. the first time we tried to record this was exactly a month ago tonight. Since then. Was it? Oh, yeah. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And since then, we have recorded the entire thing at least twice and possibly three yeah. times. We've had a variety of technological issues, and they're not all related. No. But I will say the most recent ones, I can't even remember them all, but the most recent ones are related. This is the first time in our three and a half years of doing this we've recorded a part. Although yeah. the number of times we've recorded this one, it's going to almost equal the 70-whatever oh, episodes. But we're using an app, Ringer, that we thought sounded pretty good, and it also fits the kind of thing I wanted to be able to record and then download and then edit it, and the sound is better than, like, Skype or something. But we've had some issues with Ringer. Hopefully this one will come out all right and we can keep using it. Otherwise, yeah. we're gonna have to find. We're gonna have to do some other crappy solution. And I think in the past versions of this, we kind of talked about COVID nineteen and stuff, and everything's. I mean, that was a lot has happened in a month. I don't think we really do. We really need to talk about it. I it's, don't know, but a lot has happened, and yet nothing's changed that much. Yeah. For- um, and we're both working, fortunately, yes. um, yeah. with varying degrees of annoying shit happening. But yes. I guess we can't really complain when we know there are people probably listening to this who aren't. Um, no income, so that sucks. Or yeah, you have really unemployment. Or I know a lot of people yeah. who have been trying to get unemployment, and it's just yeah, it's, so messed up. So. Well, I, I'll say this. When I was unemployed, when we first started doing this podcast... I got it briefly, and it was it was messed up then, and it was such a hassle, and I won't go into all the details, and the hassle wasn't with the requirements and stuff as much as the technology and having yeah. to call, and I would call, and I can't remember if it was 4.30 or 5 or whatever that they shut down for the day, and I would be on hold for that amount of time with nobody oh answering. Oh, my God. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So I couldn't hook up, and there was no way to connect but anyway if it was that screwed up when unemployment was really low in the state of maine i can imagine how screwed up it is when like 10 percent of the people are now you know laid off you know maine has not been hit nearly as hard as other places but if people keep acting like idiots we'll probably i know it's just so annoying but in any case we have some updates yes and you have you even remember and i wasn't going to go through my junk here to try to find it so i'll just make it very brief i kind of forgot to do this back in november when it happened but jan soaring the young german man who was falsely convicted of a murder the murder of Derek and june hasem in virginia in the 1980s was finally i guess it was paroled they're not gonna they're never gonna admit that they wrongly convicted somebody or very rarely do after f- being denied 14 times and he's being kicked back to germany which is what he wanted in the first place elizabeth hasem the daughter of the people killed who is most likely was most likely not wrongly convicted, but rightly convicted, was also paroled. And that was episode, oh gosh, I had it written down. Oh, shoot. But, um, well, it, it, episode like 29 or something. So uh, 
so you can look back, and it was the documentary Killing for Love, um, which I think is still on. I can't remember. I got so many it's streaming on Netflix, services. I think. Yeah. Or HBO or... But anyway, so he finally, after decades, was pardoned in November, and that is my update. Yay. Yeah. Well, I have an update, too. And I should right. have done it sooner, but... Um... I don't even know when the last time we recorded was, so who knows. It was February, maybe. Oh, yeah, I should have done that. Well, we soon. did record in March, haha, but it was, yeah. it's one of the lost, lost ringer files. Yeah. <laughs> out there somewhere in the. Yeah. So mm-hmm. on January 20th, 2020, Maine Governor Janet Mills, who was also the former Attorney General of the state, granted Donald Gellers a posthumous pardon. And it was the first posthumous pardon in Maine history. And if you recall... Say posthumous pardon ten times fast. <laughs> I know. If you recall, Don Gellers was the attorney who helped the Passamaquoddy tribe in the mid to late 1960s. He was in our episode 41, which is titled Not So Pleasant Point. And that episode was about a uh, Passamaquoddy man who got beaten to death by these guys from Massachusetts. And you'd have to listen to it. I'm not going over the whole thing again. Uh, so Don Gellers did a lot of work with the tribe, and he was not well-liked by the state government and the and law enforcement. In 1968, he drove to Boston to file a lawsuit. I don't know if he had to file them in person or if he just wanted to because he could probably... It was the 60s, mail. so he probably did have to file them in person. He, um, the first court of appeals is in Boston. It was and that was from Eastport, Maine, so it was probably a six-hour drive. Yeah, or so. at least. It was a $150 million lawsuit filed by the Passamaquoddies, and other tribes were also filing because the state had a treaty with them for land back over 100 years and put the money in trust, supposedly. There was right. no money left. That was one of the reasons he was not liked. He was on his way back. The article I read just said he was approached by an undercover cop, so I'm assuming maybe he had stopped somewhere on the way back. He was probably being followed as soon as he got into the state. Uh, This cop tried to get him to sell him pot because... Don Gellers was known for smoking pot, and he didn't take the bait. But when he reached when he reached his home in Eastport, state cops raided his house and found it. And I have a little air quotes, but you can't see it. Well, so, actually, they're quotes, not air quotes. Oh well, I'm doing. It's air only quotes air quotes. Is only it. right, right. It's was, in quotes. Yes, it's in quotes, but I was doing air quotes when I said I understand that, but it always... see, because you can't see me. Right, so they're quotes. Whatever. Are you going to let me read, or are you just going to... It's just a peeve I have. Yeah, I'm sorry, go on. It's not your fault. found six joints in the pocket of a jacket that was hanging in his closet. He was arrested Mm. and charged with possession. At the time... Possession was a misdemeanor, but somehow the attorney general was able to charge under an older statute that was stricter. Hmm. Uh, the article I read did not explain how, but, you know, they could do whatever the fuck they want, I guess. Right, that's true. He was convicted and sentenced to two to four years in prison. His appeal stretched out for about three years. The ACLU and National Lawyers Guild both tried to file friend of the court briefs, but the judge would not allow them to. An attorney from Boston named Harvey Silverglate told the court that Assistant Attorney General John Kelly, who is still with the office at now, and so this was 
God, he must be fucking a hundred. I know. Told him over drinks that his office had set up Gellers, but that didn't matter. His appeals were denied and he was going to serve a sentence. But this was 1971. He told his lawyer that he was going to move to Israel rather than service time. And his lawyer was like, okay, I'm not going to stop you. He moved to Israel. He lived on a kibbutz, which it seems like everybody who goes to Israel does. He joined the Israeli army and was wounded in 1973's Arab-Israeli war. He joined the bar in Israel, even though he told them about his conviction in the United States. Well, they probably didn't give a shit because they know how corrupt the system is. Well, they did. They read about it and just thought it was bogus. So they Yeah, that's what I said. It's a corrupt system. Um, In 1985, he returned to the United States, and in 1989, the U.S. Court of Appeals issued him a certificate of good standing, which means he could have practiced law again in the United States, but he he didn't. He became a rabbi instead, and he lived in New York, and he died on October 8, 2014. Okay, so before I start my story, I do want (laughs) to say... As we talked about earlier, quote-unquote, tonight, we had technical issues after we did our updates and about half an hour of this story. And so we've decided to kill the other recording program we were using. I ended my subscription and sent a firmly worded email. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. And we found another software and if this one works out uh, we'll talk about it in a future episode so but that's 19 bucks down the toilet because we really didn't get much we got a couple little things out of it but um not much yeah so that said i guess i should get into my story so yeah so if if this sounds a little different than the first part of our episode tonight that's why we're using a different software but you know in this world of everybody zooming and shit (laughs) It's it, not like I know. It's not like all of our episodes have beautiful sound. And I know, so, I know, yeah. but we're getting better. I think we're trying. Yeah, it, I, we've been saying that for three and a half years. I know. Well, we're old ladies. But that's right. <laughs> well, I, I, I never. Um, not to get off on another thing when I was about to start my story, but I don't think age is an excuse for not knowing how to use technology. And it used to frustrate me on my last job when people would, oh, yeah, I'm older. And it's like, so, so fucking what? Is there some age you reach when all of a sudden you can't figure out technology? Well, I guess I'm not at it yet. But anyway, I guess we should get going on this. I, I think we're just trying to avoid it because we've been um we're gonna dive right in it i was out i was out for a walk in the woods a week or so ago of who am i fucking fooling it was like five weeks like a month two and a half months ago can i break in just one more time sure sure go ahead you say that part where you were out walking in the woods Mm -hmm. it reminds me of this video that hannah and i used to love to watch where the woman it's called Body Rolls Tight Pants. And she oh, says, yeah. the first line is, I was walking through the forest of moccasin breath. And that just always reminds me of that. Wow. Never mind, go I am so glad that you broke in to add and she saw that. a troll boy wearing tight pants. Wow. I think okay. you told me about that a long time I ago. I showed it to you. I love that video. Anyway, go on. Okay, I'm, I'm going on. And actually, I went for a walk in the woods today, too. Oh, but I wasn't course. reminded... 
of this today, but uh, the time I walked in the woods back, it was probably, it was sometime in March now. <laughs> March. I look back, <laughs> it was so long. Um, but I was reminded of this case, and I'm guessing a lot of people are walking in the woods these days, if they can, and if you're into true crime or even fake crime, it's hard to think about being in the woods without wondering if something creepy is going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking I'm not talking about creepy like getting chased up a tree by a bear or something. Oh. I'm talking about some creepy predator guy, a human being being in there waiting to um, kill you. Like those two girls. Down the hill? Yes. Yes. In fact, I don't even want to get started on that podcast because I have so many I issues. I listen to it. But, 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 because we're, we are never going to get fucking through this. But I I'm do want to say, I do want to say that the one thing that sticks with me is that video of the guy. And now whenever oh. I see a guy like slouching around along the street in baggy jeans with like a hoodie on under a jacket, which is like almost every guy in Maine, all I can think of is uh, that guy's going to go kill somebody. But, yeah. And, but, and kind of on that note, I, I've always been the kind of person when I'm at a state park or something, you know, I open the door to the outhouse and expect to see a body in there. Yeah. Or, like, look down the latrine to see if there's yeah. a body or well, a person. Well, there'll be some weird guy in there. Like, like that guy in New Hampshire. There's a guy in Maine, too. <laughs> yeah, wow. There's uh, probably one in every state. How gross is that? But anyway. Can you get your kicks in a better way? I know, like, Come you, you want to see, you want to see female Ew, genitals so bad face? that, oh. that you're just going to stand oh, in raw stand. sewage. Anyway, anyway go uh, I'm not even th- through the first paragraph. <laughs> I don't think it's really realistic to expect that to happen to you in the woods, to expect a human attack. I think the woods are safer, at least as far as human predators go, than a lot of other places. I can't count how many times when I used to run how many men would pull up and harass me. And it was always like in upscale neighborhoods, you know, in New Hampshire. If you're familiar with the Manchester, New Hampshire area, Amherst and Bedford, you know, who you want to ride? And it's like, I'm fucking running, you know? Yeah, yeah, I'll stop in the middle of my run to take a ride with you, stranger, in your four-door late model sedan. But anyway, you know, in walking home from school, high school and stuff, it used to happen a lot. We used to joke about it because it happened yeah. so often. And, um, and it was it, the 80s, 70s and 80s when things like that were funny. Yeah, and people are like, oh, things are so much worse now. And it's like, no, now we just talk about things and realize yeah. the dangers. Anyway, when you get down to it, um, I don't think the victim in today's story was hiking in the woods either when um, her fate came we first talked about Louis Chapu briefly in episode 36, way back in October, yes. October of 2017, murder on, the, murder on the Appalachian Trail. It feels like it was October of 2017 when we first started recording this. I know. I know. I want to um, reiterate a point, Becky, that you made in that episode about the safety of hiking in regards to being murdered by a um, freaky stranger. I saw a lot of, when I was researching this, a lot of remarks that indicated how dangerous the woods were. A lot of bad articles. And one even had the headline about the Appalachian Trail being like the deadliest, you know, place to go hiking in the world. I think you discussed, what, at the time it was 11 murders along its 2,000 plus miles. And now it's been 12. Right. We did an update one at one point. Right. And that's in the last 50 years, so not... Not dangerous. 
And I also want to stress that in researching this, I found a list of deaths in New Hampshire's presidential mountain range, of which Mount Washington, which this happened near, is one of the nearly 150 deaths in the presidential range since the 1880s. Only this this one, Louis Chapu, was murder. And granted, some of the falls and accidents, (laughs) in quotes, not air quotes. Air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yes. That's all right. Uh, I just wish people would understand that you don't have to say air quotes if people uh, can't see you doing it. It's yes. just in quotes. If if that would just happen, I would... Your life would be... Yeah, it would. My life would be perfect. Um, <laughs> anyway... But if those were, if those, if any of those falls or accidents, I'm sure some were, were murder. It wasn't obvious. And also they were likely by a hiking companion, you know, not a stranger in the woods. You know, like, oh, she was taking my picture and she just stepped, took a step back and fell off the cliff, you know. (laughs) So trail woods, not dangerous as far as human predators go. There was another, you know, they said there was one murder. There was another unsolved New Hampshire murder case that I would think kind of would count as the presidential range. But it was Sherry Lynn Roth, 22, of North Conway, New Hampshire, and she was hiking on the Sawyer Brook Trail, which is on kind of on the other side of Mount Washington from where Louise Chapu was, about 20 miles to the southwest. She was hiking on August 21st, 1977, and her body was found on August 24th of that year. She'd been strangled to death. And we'll talk mm-hmm. a little more about her later. Mm-hmm. And Becky, you also made the point in episode 36 that this was a little difficult to research. And I want to yes. reiterate. Yeah, I want to reiterate that. It happened in 2001. You know, the time when news articles weren't all going up to the internet that much. And, you know, I can't even remember if at the New Hampshire Union Leader, where I worked at the time, in which covered this murder heavily, mostly by my friend, Lorna Calhoun, who you heard about in the Carl Drake episode. I can't even remember if we had a website in 2001. You know, I can't, it's all a blur to me now, but if we did, I guarantee there wasn't a lot of stuff going up to it. There's a, I know there's a recent podcast that came out last year, but it's in French. (laughs) So I didn't listen. Although in the time it's taken us to to get this, I could have learned French between the first time. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's smarter than I am. The best sources I had for this were WMUR, Manchester, New Hampshire's TV station, which among other things had a good ten-year retrospective posted on Facebook, and they also had a retrospective in 2004, three years after it happened. I did find a November 29th, 2001. New Hampshire Union Leader story. This is the only article I could find from when it actually happened. And it was kind of embedded in a defunct website. I can't remember even what I Googled, but there was all this garble. Sometimes it happens. Yeah. I also got information from a 10-year anniversary story from the Berlin Daily Sun in New Hampshire. And a story... Mm -hmm. And a story from last year in the North Conway Daily Sun that was about that podcast but went into some details. I also spent some time looking at Appalachian Mountain Club maps and more, trying to figure out logistics and geography. And on that note, I want to say that there's a lot of confusing information about this case. There's a lot of trailhead this and trail that and what she had with her and what she didn't. And a lot of the confusion, I think, comes from the lack of availability of information from right when it happened. You know, it's that kind of thing where... 
people find an article that may not be complete and people are just repeating the same information over and over and they make like suppositions based on that information and mm-hmm. and it just gets more inadequate as it goes on. And, and also Yeah, and then those things get printed being reprinted and become like a right like a fact when <clears throat> Right. Also from reading articles and blog posts about it, it's obvious a lot is written by people who aren't familiar with the area, not only the geography, but just what it's like. And it also seems like there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't plain make sense that gets repeated as fact. So I did my best to separate the wheat from the chaff and use a little common sense and trying to present the most accurate and logical tale here. Now that I've totally bored you with all my qualifiers and most of my complaints, although some are still to come, let's get started. Louise Chapu left Sherbrooke, Quebec for the three-hour drive to Pinkham Notch in New Hampshire's White Mountains, where she planned to do a long weekend of hiking the morning of November 15, 2001. She told her partner, Pierre, she would return November 18th or 19th, Sunday or Monday, um, after the weekend. Before she left, her daughter, Corinne, 19 at the time, told her, be safe and don't make things dangerous. And Corinne says that Louise replied. And Corinne said Louise replied, no, don't be afraid. I'll be okay. And if I'm not coming back Monday, you can call the police. But that was a joke, Corinne said. She told this to WMUR in 2004. Chapu likely stopped for lunch after she got into the U.S. since she crossed the border in Pittsburgh, New Hampshire at about 11.45 a.m., but didn't reach the Appalachian Mountain Club Welcome Center in Pinkham Notch until about 3. That was an hour after she would have if she'd driven straight through. Mm. A a credit card receipt showed she stopped at the Pick Quick convenience store in Colebrook at 12.50 p.m., and if Colbert sounds familiar, it's because it was the town of Carl Traga's massacre <laughs> in episode 52. It's Traga, and he's got a gun. Which I think is the my favorite of the ones oh, I've, I've and done. Yes, and the Appalachian Chair one is one of my favorites. Yeah, I like, and I like that too. Wow, so this is like, it's all coming together with yeah. this episode. If we actually get this episode yeah. done and out. Normally, the entire trip as I said, would have taken three hours or less, and the AMC Welcome Center is less than two hours from the border crossing. If she'd taken a more roundabout route, it would have taken about 20 minutes to half an hour longer, since because of the mountains, there aren't that many ways to get there from there. And the only reason I'm bringing that up is because, you know, there's the internet, quote-unquote, sleuths out there. There's all this... (laughs) I don't even want to get into it, but all this, like, ooh, why didn't she get that, you know, all the, and it's like, because she fucking stopped for lunch, okay? I know, you you don't. And also, there are references to her being tired from a long day of driving, and I guess it's all relative, but I don't consider three to four hour drive a long day of driving. No. Particularly for a 52-year-old woman who was in good shape. She loved exercising the outdoors. And it, there's a lot of stuff around that that maybe she was, like, disori- disoriented because oh she was tired from driving. And it's like, mm, yeah. Anyway, the weather for that day, according to the National Weather Service, was temperatures hovering in the low 40s, and that's Fahrenheit for our European listeners, and cloudy and getting ready to rain or snow overnight, kind of like it is out here right now. From TV footage from the time, it looks like there wasn't any snow on the ground. The forecast was for wind gusts of up to 43 miles per hour on top of Mount Washington, which the visitor center is at the foot of. 
Her family said Louise, who, as I said earlier, loved the outdoors and hiking, also loved the White Mountains and was familiar with the area. She'd hiked Mount Washington before, and several articles I've read about this said she made the trip intending to, quote, hike Mount Washington. And mm. I, find that, I find that unlikely. I think it's more likely that, as one article said, she was looking forward to doing a number of day hikes in the area. Mm. At 6,288 feet, Mount Washington is the highest peak east of the Mississippi and the crown jewel of New Hampshire's presidential range in the White Mountains. And for 62 years, it had the record for the fastest wind gusts recorded on the surface of the earth, 231 miles an hour. That was a fact that when I worked at the Union Leader that we had to know, we mentioned it frequently, until that record was beat by Tropical Cyclone Olivia in April 1996. Damn it! While the mountain isn't as high as some of the higher peaks in the western United States and is certainly dwarfed by the world's largest mountains, it's not safe to hike once the snow starts flying. And I believe she was an experienced enough hiker that she wasn't going to hike the mountain, but rather hike around the mountain. There are people who do hike Mount Washington in the winter, and people who get lost and have to go be rescued and stuff. But it doesn't even sound like she had like the kind of equipment and stuff you'd need to hike it that time of year. Um, and again, that's another the just thing that keeps getting repeated you know it's just irritating to me and that little area remote as it is where she stopped that day is pretty much grand central station for outdoor recreation that time of year in that part of new hampshire if there can be such a thing the appalachian trail cuts through the amc welcome center property which is at the foot of Mount Washington, as I said. And there are two lodges at the site for hikers and campers. There are a huge variety of trails that spur off from there or are nearby. About a mile north on Route 16 across the road is Wildcat Ski Area, which likely was just opening for the season. And to add to all of that, there's a Greyhound bus stop on the AMC property. As we know from many stories that we've done and other people, lots of people get on a Greyhound to go somewhere. And do something bad, right? Yeah. And what I'm saying, not to malign Greyhound buses, but just that. It's not just people coming in to hike and stuff. You know, there's access to the place for people. Those of you familiar with northern New Hampshire will know there aren't a lot of roads to get here and there because of the mountains. Route 16, which the Welcome Center is on, is a north-south route, a two-lane twisting road through the woods and mountains, And the stretch that goes by the AMC Center, which is about 20 miles long, connects U.S. Route 2 to the north and U.S. 302 to the south. And they're both like two-lane windy roads. None of these are interstate highways or anything. In any case, it was 3 p.m. on Thursday, November 15, 2001, when Louise arrived. It was a week before the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. Sunset was to be at 519, so about two hours after she got there. Louise had made reservations at the Appalachian Mountain Club's Joe Dodge Lodge. I like yeah. the name. I want to go stay there just because of the name. Yeah, um, we should and, go sometime. We should. And as I said, it's one of two lodges on the property. But she didn't check in when she got there, instead stopping at the AMC's Visitor Center, which was up by the highway. She asked the clerk if there was a short hike she could do before it got dark. And it's believed that this was Louise who asked. She either didn't give her name or she did and the clerk wasn't paying attention like a male boss. <laughs> and <laughs> But she said she just arrived. She was staying for a few days and she had a French-Canadian accent. 
so it's just assumed it was her, and well, I think... my question, too, is this clerk that we don't know... This clerk. Was he or she shown a picture of Louise? I, I would, I would assume... Stories. My guess is, in 2001, the stories have more about the clerk. Yes. A lot of the information that's in articles now came from yeah. later articles, like 10th anniversary articles yes, and exactly. stuff. exactly. So it's unclear. The clerk later told the police, and we don't know if the clerk is a he or she. I saw one reference to it being a he. Other things are not clear. I couldn't even find the person's name, but this clerk suggested that Louise try the Lost Pond Trail. The trailhead was right across Route 16 from the center. In fact, those hiking at park at the AMC Center parking hmm. lot. It's about a mile, and it just goes to Lost Pond and also connects with the Appalachian Trail and stuff. This is how the AMC guide describes the trail. The walk takes you past beaver ponds along a mountain stream and through the forest to excellent views of Mount Washington. Park at the AMC Pinkham Notch Visitor Center lot. Cross Route 16 and look for the sign for the Lost Pond Trail. After crossing a small bridge near the Beaver Pond, the trail curves to the right and climbs gently uphill. Continue until you see the pond on your right and be sure to look for signs of beaver or other wildlife. You may even see a moose swimming Ooh. in the pond. Yeah, right. You never see a moose when you wanna. Yeah, I know. Only when you don't. The clerk said Chapu seemed tired from the drive and agreeable to the hike with no obvious issues. Like, she didn't seem stressed out. She didn't seem like she was bothered by anything. Just, you know, she wanted to get out and get some fresh air um, before it got dark. And that conversation was the last reported one Louise Chapu ever had. Louise could have driven down the behind the visitor center to Joe Dodge Lodge, checked in and stowed her stuff away. But it gets dark fast in the mountains, and she probably didn't want to take the time. She also could have left her Ford Focus in the Visitor Center parking lot and walked across the road to the Lost Pond Trail, like the clerk had suggested, but she didn't do that either. Whether she planned to hike Lost Pond Trail or not, she drove about a mile south on Route 16 to the Glen Ellis Picnic and Scenic Area and parked there. The lot also provides parking for several trails, including Glen Boulder Trail, which is accessed by another short trail, the Daratissima Trail. It's unlikely she would have intended to hike Glen Boulder, all the later reports are that that's exactly what she was doing at the time of her death. It's labeled as difficult and not very scenic by the AMC Mountain Guide, and also described as lightly traveled. At least the trails that go up Mount Washington, as well as Mount Isolation, and it's one of those kind of long trails you take when you're going to do a long day of hiking. It's oh, not yeah. a it's not a short trail you'd go on when it was getting dark because you thought there'd be something scenic because there's nothing scenic. You know, I mean, I'm not saying there's not anything yeah, scenic but at it's all. Not, yeah. It's not known as a scenic trail where you can go and have a great view of Mount Washington after 10 minutes or something. But who knows why she parked there? It could have been for a number of reasons. The parking lot is accessible to the Glenella Scenic and Picnic area, and it's across Route 16 from the part of the Appalachian Trail that goes to Lost Pond, and is actually a shorter way to get to the pond than the trail from the AMC Center. So maybe she wanted a quicker hike to the pond, you know, just drive down there and then hike across to the pond, see the view of Mount Washington. Maybe she decided to go check out Glenellis Falls, which is a very short hike from there. You know, who knows? I <laughs> I do a lot of things. And um, then I think, gee, gee, if I were murdered right now, and this was on, yeah. like, ta- ta- 
Dateline or 48 Hours or something, they'd have a hell of a time making sense of why I was doing it. Like, sometimes if I'm in my upstairs bathroom and then I realize after going to the bathroom that there's no toilet paper, like, I'll come downstairs, and this was back when toilet paper actually existed, I'll come downstairs, but, like, I'll keep my pants down because I haven't wiped and I don't want to get them wet or dirty or whatever. And I always think, you know, if somebody came in and murdered me, or even if I just fell down the stairs and broke my neck, they'd be people would be like, oh, my God, why are her pants down? You know, and it'd be this big mystery. You know, I mean, there are a lot of, there's a lot of shit you do that doesn't make well, sense. yeah, I mean, like, just like, I think about, like, the Maura Murray story and how, like everyone's like speculating and it's like you know i take long drives a lot but it, that's a way to clear my head and or just you yeah know, i love i love taking see. a long drive and yeah. um like like a few weeks ago i just drove well probably longer than that now but a few weeks ago if we'd been recording this in march when we to, to just one day i sometimes go just to pick a place to drive and i just drove up to to rumford and back and i'm like if i get in a car crash or something people are gonna be like well i don't know what she was doing i know uh, you know well like that way that's that's me i mean lots of times if i'm going somewhere especially like if i'm going somewhere for my job or something i'll take a route not always the the most direct route because there might be something else i want to see or i might get tired of driving the same route all the time so i want to go a different way i hate taking the interstate the one high we have one highway in maine i get bored bored with it you know so i'll take different scenic routes or go some or i'll just have read about something and want to go see what it looks like you know and i don't always tell people that that's what i'm doing well why would you you know right because there's a lot of and i'll get into it more later but there's this oh like all this portent that she didn't do what the clerk said and and i'm like my guess is she didn't say to the clerk, yes, you are right. That sounds like exactly what I want to do. And I am definitely going to go do that right now. She probably just it seemed like, oh, yeah, that sounds like something I might do. But Never we do that all the time. Polite. Right. And not that she didn't want to do it, but maybe she got out there and said, you know, I don't feel like, you know, if I just go down to Glen Ellis, I can get there a lot faster. Well, you know, maybe she wanted to just check out the lay of the land or something before, you know. Before it got dark, right? Yeah, and, and also, she was going to do the next day, or right? Right. You know? So, I go into all of this to say that I've read several accounts that police said she was hiking the Glen Boulder Trail, and if the clerk's information is accurate, and given the time of day, it just doesn't seem likely she'd be doing that. And there's all this: why was she hiking that trail instead of hiking the trail she was going to hike? And all we know, really is a fact, is that she went to the parking lot about a mile south rather than go on the hike the clerk suggested. Pierre, her boyfriend, wasn't worried when she didn't call all weekend. Chapu was not the type of woman who called her boyfriend constantly, her friend Natalie Petrowski told the union leader a couple of weeks later. And I know it always bugs me when people say this in podcasts, but I'm going to say it. Even though it was 2001, everybody didn't have cell phones. People yeah. were, and the people who did, you were not on your phone all the time. Smartphones no, totally were, different. smartphones were not yet invented. I think the closest thing to a smartphone maybe was a blueberry back then. But, you know, people Blackberry, had flip phones. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, I'm old. But you know what I mean. So people were not in constant contact with each other back then the way they are now. And I think they were better for it. But 
except for in this one case. (laughs) (laughs) Pierre became concerned Monday morning when she hadn't returned. Louise was a self-employed counselor who worked from home, and her office was full of people waiting to talk to her. He became increasingly worried as the hours passed and finally called police around midnight on Monday, November 19th. Her car was found in the Glen Ellis parking lot Tuesday, November 20th. Police found her fully clothed body, stabbed multiple times, her throat was slashed. On November 22nd, Thanksgiving Day, two days after her car was found. Reports vary as to where her body was. Some say it was 200 yards off the trail. Some say a quarter mile from the lodge, which isn't possible since the parking lot and trail are a mile from the lodge. So maybe they meant a quarter mile from her car. Some others say 100 yards off the trail. I think maybe 200 yards from the car, 100 yards off the trail. It's hard to say. It's another thing where information is just muddled. But in any case, she hadn't gotten far. The one news report I could find from the time of the murder, a union leader report by Kathy Marchaki, my old colleague, published on November 29th, a week after her body was found. And this looks to me, this is a story I found like embedded in another website. This looks to me like one of those who was Louise Chapu stories rather than a story, uh, an article about the murder or updating the murder. That story said her body was found very near the beginning of the Glen Boulder Trail, not far from her car. And because it was written a week after her body was found and also Kathy Marchaki wrote it, I'm going to take that as the most accurate depiction when her body was found, friends and family thought she had died from exposure to the elements because police didn't tell them what happened right away, Petrowski mm. said. First they told us she is dead and they didn't give us any details. Details kept coming like drops. So, a lot of these quotes from her friends and family, they're French-Canadian and they speak English as a second language and I find them much more articulate and poetic <laughs> than a lot of the quotes you get from. So if some of these quotes kind of sound funny, it's because... Yeah, I'm not going to do a corny French-Canadian accent, but they do, I find, a very pleasing way of speaking. (laughs) Okay. What? I don't know. She said, first they told us she is dead, (laughs) and they didn't give us any details. Details kept coming like drops. I find that much better quote than what you get from some... They didn't tell us nothing. That that would be the the you know the American person. There's usually a neighbor that with no teeth that they interview yeah. on TV. She seemed nice enough, but you know you just don't know. <laughs> and tell us nothing. Anyway, there was some talk, as there is in many cases like this, that they searched the area and should have found her body earlier. But as we know like from the Chandra Levy case and others, initial searches don't go too far off the trail, and then they expand, and the train is pretty rough there. It's easy to miss things with the underbrush, the boulders, the leaves, the ups and downs. Also, they didn't know where she was. Her car was in the parking lot. You know, so there's a lot of ground cover there. The one thing I want to quash right at the beginning, although we're not we're not really right at the beginning, but before some of the more obsessed true crime people out there get all worked up, I've seen several blog posts and other internet things where people speculate that Louise's death is tied to Maura Murray's, which Becky mentioned a few minutes ago, um, which was near Woodstock, New Hampshire, and Brianna Maitland's in Montgomery, Vermont, both in 2004, three years later. I didn't read many of those or go into them because it just doesn't seem likely or logical, oh, and I don't. 
I know, I didn't want to get sucked into annoying wormholes. I'm not going to go into all the details of Murray and Maitland. You can listen to episode 8 of this podcast, if you're unfamiliar, where we cover them extensively, as well as drunk guys who are killed leaving bars in the winter and dumped in water and other things. But I'll say this, Murray disappeared. Her body has never been found. So while it's likely she was murdered or the victim of some other kind of foul play, there's no connection there. Yeah. You know, um, Louise Chapu was killed in November 2001. Murray disappeared in February 2004. Chapu was 52. Murray was 21. The two things happened all the way across the state from each other. And while New Hampshire isn't that big a state and it gets narrower the higher up it goes, the two areas are separated by the White Mountain National Forest and the White Mountains themselves. And they're not really considered that close to each other. It's not like they're in the same neighborhood. So the only thing they really have in common is that one's a murder of a single woman and one's a disappearance of a single woman, and they happen in the same state within three years of each other. And Brianna Maitland was in March 2004 in Montgomery, Vermont, halfway across Vermont from New Hampshire, so even farther from Louise Chapu. She was 17, and also has never been found. So I'm not sure what the internet sleuths are suggesting, since I didn't read those blog posts, since I know they'd only annoy me. But given the information publicly available on all three cases, a connection just doesn't seem likely. Face it, a lot of bad shit happens to women all over the place. And that should really be more of a concern than speculating about serial killers. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't serial killers, and I'm not saying even we don't speculate about them, but why, and I know I've said this before, but why is it more bothersome or intriguing to people that there's one guy doing all these things than that there are a lot of guys doing these things? So anyway, I'm shelving that internet theory right there. We're not going to get into it. If that's why you're listening, you can hang up the phone, Joe, because... No, no, you should still listen. Oh, okay, yeah, still listen. Face it, if somebody's been listening... learn something new. If somebody's been listening this far along, (laughs) they're going to stick with it till the end. Another issue from reading about this, as I mentioned before, is there seems to be some general misinformation that doesn't make sense about the murder. I don't know if it's because of bad reporting poor information from the police or a combination or bad repeating of unclear information, but I'll try to entangle some of that. On this podcast, as you know, faithful listeners, we're not investigators and we don't expect our storytelling is going to solve any crimes. What we try to do is take a story you may or may not have heard about and give you some more details and insight than you may have gotten from other places. But in this one is no different, but I would like to say that as they still struggle to find out what happened to Shapu all these years later, it'd be nice to have information that made sense, available to people. Almost every report I see, one of the cops or Jeff Strells in the AG is saying, you know, people may have seen something and they don't know it was important, blah, blah, blah. Well, if there's confusing and misinformation out there, that doesn't help people with who might have good information come forward. Where Louise's body was found, what she had with her, what she didn't, and what was in her car, the fact that it's widely reported she was hiking the Glen Boulder Trail at the time she was murdered, those are all things that bother me about this. But first, who was Louise Chapu? Who indeed? (laughs) Who indeed? According to the New Hampshire Union Leader story a week after her body was found, the one by old colleague, I shouldn't say old, she's not old, she's a little older than me, but Kathy Marchaki, Chapu, a psychologist, as I've said, she was a family and marital counselor 
who ran her practice out of her home, was a woman who challenged the edges of life, Mark Chalky wrote. Coming into her own at the start of the women's liberation movement, Shapu embarked on a career, had her first child on her own, played super mom, and constantly tested herself against nature through her hiking, skiing, and other outdoor ventures. She took risks, sometimes too many. And that's from the story. Louise was a very strong, independent woman who had a mind of her own, her friend Natalie Petrowski said. Quote, she would be very brave, and sometimes I thought she would take too many risks going traveling alone and all that. Petrowski is a Montreal journalist who knew Chapu for nearly 20 years, or 30 years, rather, according to the story. She said Louise was intellectually curious with a strong interest in human nature and also an extremely physical woman who avidly pursued outdoor sports, like you and me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her friend Petrowski said she looked at least 20 years younger than her age and remained a little bit of a, quote, tomboy, which is a phrase I hate, but I'm just putting it in there so I can tell people that they it's ridiculous. It. Yes, it's a ridiculous label to give a girl or a woman because it implies there's some sort of way to behave if you're female. And if you're not behaving that way, you have to be labeled as something else. You know, you can't just say, oh, somebody's outdoorsy and they like sports. You have to label them a tomboy, you know. Yeah, I know. Do you get where I'm coming from? Yeah. I get yeah. what you're putting down. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's the only reason I use that quote. <laughs> um, so I could that's right up there with air quotes, people. Actually it's above air quotes. Forget the thing I said about the air quotes <laughs> making my life perfect. If people stop using tomboy, that would make my life. Shapu wanted to have a child and had her first daughter, Corinne, on her own. It was hard, but she proved she could do it, Petrowski said. Eventually, Kathy Marchaki writes, she tired of this superwoman thing and um, she needed to be in a relationship. It's funny how things change over the years because that in 2001, it, you know, somebody would write that and be, meh. If that were nowadays, I'd say, eh, do you really want to put it that way? You know, that she I needed know. to be, you know. But anyway, when Corinne was about five years old, Shapu met Pierre, and the two had been living together for more than a decade, and they had another daughter, Constance. Another good friend, Marie Pinot, told podcaster Boris Prue that Shapu decided to go hiking alone after a trip with friends got canceled. Pinot said Shapu loved the outdoors and had hiked in the White Mountains many times before. Some reports say she frequently made trips there with another friend, Louise Lachance. <laughs> and that's the first and last time we will hear of Louise Lachance in this story. Oh, she just sounds like she should live in Maine. I know. Uh, so, a lot of these names do. Her family and friends said that she had no issue getting away on her own for a hike. A three-minute report on WMUR, again, the Manchester, New Hampshire TV station, shows multiple pictures of Shapu, many of them of her hiking, boating, or doing other outdoor activities, all of them with a big smile. It's hard to comprehend, Pinot told WMUR in December 2011, a report marking the 10th anniversary of Shapu's murder. Shapu's family and friends, at the time at least, came down every year to bring attention to the murder. She was such a strong person, too. We've always thought we'd die before her. I mean, she really gave that impression. And then to see her gone, it's very sad. It's always what I felt, sadness about this, Pinot said. Another friend, Dennis Masson, Marie's husband, told WMUR in the same report that she was a person who loved life. Uh, although I shouldn't make fun of it because we were talking because it. it sounds like she did. I always say I know that I will never get murdered 
because nobody, even though I do love life, I don't think that's the first thing anyone would say about me. I also don't light up a room. And and you never met a friend? You didn't? Right. You never met a stranger. Dennis said, that's why she was here, to go hiking that weekend. I always felt it was very sad that out of all the people, she was the one that loved life and loved living, and she's the one who had to go away. Constant sh- I know. Constant Chapu, 10 when her mother died, and this was 10 years later, so she was 20, said she misses the things she'd never gotten to do with her mother. Simple things that they would have done as adults together. To go for a beer with my mother, to have a coffee with my mother, or talk over old stories. Talking over all old stories or having good times. That's what I miss most, she says, as footage of Chapu and her younger daughter play on the screen, and um, Constance looks like she's about eight or nine in the video, and it's very cute. Here's what police knew at the time her body was found. She was found off the Glen Boulder Trail, leading some to surmise she'd gone hiking on the trail. Again, something that doesn't make sense to me. Her hiking shoes, or boots, and the chocolate she always brought with her on a hike were in her mm. car. Her car keys the larger of her two backpacks with a Canada maple leaf insignia, a sleeping uh-huh. bag, a sleeping bag. I think it was the kind of backpack that had the sleeping bag attached to it. Uh-huh. Some reports say, like, make them sound separate, but I think they were together. And either a pennant or, pen- yeah. <laughs> or pendant with the letter S, depending on what article you read. And the thing is, I think it's pendant and it was a typo, but it's one of those things that got repeated in so many articles. And well, I'm maybe like... Maybe she liked the... <laughs> the what? Sherbrooke team. Oh, right, the Sherbrooke. Well, they, they might have a semi-pro. Yeah, oh, oh, because you're such up. a hockey fan. You're I so- looked it up in between yes. all of our recordings. Yeah. Like with a big ass. Anyway, yeah. either a pendant or a pennant with an S on it was also missing. So missing were the larger of the two backpacks, the one with the Canada maple leaf, a sleeping bag, which was likely with the backpack, and either a pennant or pendant with an S and her car keys. Police told WMUR in 2004 that Shapu was hiking on the Glen Boulder Trail but that whoever killed her forced her off the trail and brought her down into a clearing about 100 yards away. In 2011, New Hampshire State Trooper Cold Case Unit Officer Mike Kakowski told WMUR, This poor woman comes down from another country. She's a stranger. She knows nobody. She's down here to get away and relax and take a vacation for herself, and within hours of arriving at her destination, she is very brutally attacked in the woods. And I would say, yes, officer, she was. (laughs) It's yeah. good, that's a good assessment of what happened. It seems as though there's DNA evidence, though no one's ever made a big deal about it, either the police or the press. A blog post from 2010 about another murder, a totally separate murder, and again, this is from people just like us, getting their information from the same places, said there was usable DNA and, impli- hmm. yeah, and implied that it had just been made public, but I couldn't find any news stories about that, and you'd think if it was in 2010, I'd be able to find something. And the 2011 Berlin Daily Sun story, and by the way, Berlin, New Hampshire, is spelled like Berlin, but pronounced Berlin, if it sounds like I'm mispronouncing it. As well as the WMUR 10th anniversary broadcast, about a week after that, Kakowski said evidence, including DNA, is periodically reviewed, but didn't give any details. So it sounds like they have DNA. Like, nobody says anything specific about it. It's a little... Given 
how that's probably going to be the only way this is ever solved. I know. You know, he also in 2011 said tips still come in, most revolving around suspicious people in the area or her missing gear. But again, he didn't give any details. And obviously those tips haven't led much of anywhere because now it's 2020 and um, they have not arrested anyone. He said at the time they're still optimistic it can be solved and also said he believes someone saw or heard something, just didn't realize at the time that it was significant, quote, but coupled with a piece of evidence we already have, it might make a lot of sense. That was echoed by Jess Strelzen, a senior assistant AG in New Hampshire. Because there was a week between when she was killed and their definite, it was November 15th, by the way, since she never checked in at Joe Dodge, and her body being discovered, it's possible some people visiting the area saw something but didn't realize it involved a crime and never reported it since uh, in, you know what he's saying since nobody knew there was a crime till a week later you know um, yeah. and by the way you may remember Strelson from our episode 8 which was Maura Murray and other Ooh. assorted things as well as episode 31 the Connecticut Valley serial killer and episode 11 New Hampshire cold case serial killer revealed <laughs> wow he's a busy <laughs> he gets guy. around yeah New Hampshire's a small state. Police don't know if the missing items were taken from her car or from her person. Strelson said the case has been a difficult one from the beginning. Quote, first, just because the area where the murder occurred, which is out in the woods. Second, there was a significant time lag between the murder and the discovery of Louise's body. At least a week went by. And because of that, the killer or killers essentially had a week's head start on us. That meant we lost some potential evidence out there as well. Third, something like this is probably... Probably more of a random type killing, which are unusual yeah. in New Hampshire, huh? But those tend to be more difficult to solve. Yes, no they do. Some people speculate someone could have followed her from Quebec. And police have said that's possible, but not likely. I think the big thing on this, and that's where some of the whole thing about how it took her longer to get there than she should have and stuff, I think that's what people are implying. I think the big thing on that is there aren't that many ways to get over the U.S.-Canada border in New England. And that was two months after 9-11. Yeah. They knew to the minute when Louise crossed, so I think it would have been fairly easy to see who else did and if they had any connection to her. There aren't any nearby border crossings. The one in Maine at Coburn Gore in Franklin County and near Lac-Megantic, Quebec, would have been a much longer drive for someone, you know, if they were going to cross somewhere else. It would have been hours. And ditto for Vermont if they were crossing. The Pittsburgh crossing is the only one in New Hampshire. And these aren't huge border crossings with multiple lanes of traffic like people might be picturing. These are little two-lane crossings, you know, with one or two guys in a shack. You know, uh, you know, it's not like all this traffic is coming through and it'd be hard to track down who came through. Kakowski said the answer lies up in Canada somewhere, you know, if it's the case that somebody followed her. I can't say we've excluded that, certainly, but all indications are that likely it was someone from this area, somebody she encountered that she didn't know, a random attack, essentially. Petrowski, her friend, told the union leader right after the murder she knew of nothing that would substantiate the rumor that someone in Quebec wanted to do Louise harm. Chaput did a lot of family mediation work and sometimes would be called to testify in cases and also consulted with inmates at a local prison. But Petrowski found it improbable that a disgruntled patient would follow Chapeau to New Hampshire to harm her. Quote, if somebody was really against her, they could have done it in Sherbrooke. This person would have to know she was going to Mount Washington, Petrowski said. She said she doubts Louise would broadcast her vacation plans to her patients. And that was, of course, before Facebook, 
So even if she were the type, she wouldn't be putting on Facebook, hey, everybody, go into Mount Washington for the weekend. Investigators in 2011 said the case, quote, had direction, unquote, and have had suspects over the years. But as I said, more than 18 years later, uh, more than 18 years after she was killed, not after 2011, no one's been arrested. Boris Prue of the Synthesis podcast found out, that's the one in Quebec, found out about the murder when he did a five-part podcast in 2018 on the unsolved 2011 murder of Valerie LeBlanc in Quebec. The 18-year-old student was found burned and mutilated in a wooded area, and during his research, Prue interviewed the coroner on the case, who was Marie Pinot, Chapu's friend, the one who said it was sad. And she mentioned to Prue that she had a good friend who was the victim of an unsolved murder. And Prue told this to the North Conway Daily Sun last year. Prue was hoping to track down the AMC Visitor Center clerk and talk to that person for his podcast. So if any of you out there speak French, some of our (laughs) Canadian listeners, why don't you give a listen to that and let us know what he found out. And, And meanwhile, I'll try to learn French so I can listen to it myself. I don't mean to to sound like I'm trivializing the knowledge of French. No, I'd like to I'd like to hear his podcast. I would too, but we'd have to know French. I mean, we could hear it, but it wouldn't make sense. Um, <laughs> Prue said that as he learned more, many strange details caught his attention. One thing was location. Prue said a hiking trail just a short distance from the Appalachian Mountain Club's Pinkham Notch Visitor Center seemed like an unusual place for a murder. I kind of disagree, and I'll talk about that in a minute. He also said the fact Chapu's dark blue internal frame backpack, which he says has a sleeping bag in it, and he seems to know what he's talking about, was never found. And why would Chapu take her backpack and sleeping bag but leave her hiking boots in the car? Hmm, why? Why indeed? I totally agree. (laughs) And that bugged me. I can't even remember having discussions in the newsroom when this happened about this stuff, and that's always bugged me. I think a lot of the mystery surrounds people assuming she went on a hike. On, yeah. the Glen, on the Glen Boulder Trail. But here's what I think happened. I don't think she ever went on a hike. You don't, do you? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> Ooh. Even if she were not going to wear her hiking boots for a one-miler to Lost Pond, she sure as hell would have worn them on the difficult Glen Boulder Trail. And also, she would have brought the fucking chocolate, for God's mm. sake. I mean, I know I would have. But it's also, as I said before, incredibly unlikely she would have hiked that trail that time of day, even with her boots on and with her chocolate. It's a long, difficult trail that climbs Mount Washington and Mount Isolation with no quick scenic areas to just go to for a minute, for 10 minutes or whatever. That area, for all the activities there, is desolate in a lot of ways. I drove through there last fall, much earlier in the year than she would have been there. There isn't a lot of traffic, and the couple places I pulled over, I was the only car in the parking lot. I believe she went to that parking lot to either hop across the street to Lost Pond without taking the mile-long trail from the Mm -hmm. AMC Center, or she just decided to check out the Glen Ellis Scenic Spot and maybe get some kinks out. I believe whoever attacked her either just wanted to rob her or wanted to kill and rob someone. Either she'd gone into the woods for a quick walk, or what I think is much more likely, he dragged her in there so yeah. he wouldn't so he wouldn't be seen killing her. He took her mm-hmm. larger backpack, probably from her car, the one more likely to have stuff in it, and a sleeping bag. I've never seen any mention in any article about a purse or a wallet or her money. It's weird. 
Yeah, her car keys weren't found, but he didn't take her car. So I wonder, there's a lot of things that could have happened. I don't think it's that mysterious. I wonder if she threw them in the woods, something I might do if she thought he was going to steal her car. There's a ton of underbrush, leaves, etc. And while I'm sure they searched the site, they'd be hard to find. I mean, after all, it took them two days to find her body after they found her car. They could have been in her hand and dropped. He He could have just taken them, yeah. Right, maybe he got some blood on him or something. Yeah, and, that's what I was thinking. Um, I'm not sure if the person was in a vehicle driving by. Obviously, I'm not sure because I don't know. Waiting in the parking lot or someone on one of the many trails there. But I think they saw an opportunity to rob someone and took it. It's not clear if the killer got away with her purse, as I said. It's never been mentioned in anything I've read. Or maybe he just wanted to get out of there and took the most likely things. But from what I know about hiking, which I do... And just the obvious, <laughs> I hike, yeah. And just the obvious evidence, I don't think she went on a hike on Glen Boulder. And I don't think she encountered someone in the woods. What I think is it happened in the parking lot. Yeah, you and, know, I wanted uh, to say what you might be about to say, but I was looking at the Google Maps and satellite images. The parking lot's right on that road. Right, There's right. No, it's right I mean, there. You know, you just drive in. It's not like it's off the road. You can see it's just open. Anyone could drive by do whatever and drive away right right and it's not beyond the realm of possibility that while no one followed her from quebec someone may have from the amc center for whatever reason or like i was just thinking reminded of the um that when our sister liz did of that guy in oregon that drove up and down the highway right somebody some weirdo could easily drive up and down the highway just looking for opportunity. Because, because right. it's kind of isolated, so if there is somebody it's, there, they could it, easily... It's that, it's that contradiction between being remote enough for somebody to quickly do something to somebody, yes. but being accessible enough yes, exactly. that, to find somebody. Like, if you go into the woods, the odds of finding the kind of person you want to kill or rob in the woods is not likely yeah, on a lightly recommend that no <laughs> but, but but as i was saying too it's not beyond the realm of possibility that well no one followed her from quebec someone may have from the amc center for yes, whatever reason exactly. maybe someone saw her there they wanted to rob someone and she looked likely maybe somebody who had gotten off the greyhound bus there even if that person was on foot the parking lot she went to i think is less than a mile down route 16 from where mm-hmm. she said she'd be so if he started walking she drove down there you can walk a mile in 10 minutes yeah much hay is made in blogs and hiking and outside type publications about her quote making the wrong choice or making a fateful choice I look at it is that she was probably in a safe, open place, a place considered safe when this started, you yeah. know, safer than being isolated in the woods. If someone saw her at the AMC Center where the Appalachian Trail goes through and there's a Greyhound bus station as well as two lodges for hikers, no choice she made would have been the right one. And okay. ditto for if somebody seen her, if somebody was already in that parking lot or somebody was driving by that parking lot. The scenario that keeps coming to my mind, and it would explain, like, the missing backpack, but why her hiking stuff was in the car, she may have had the car door open, she's rearranging something in her backpack, she's maybe moving her purse into the backpack, or out, you know, who knows what she's doing, she's just finished this long drive, my guess is... 
she was attacked in the parking lot and dragged and into the woods. Surprise, yes. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I would envision it too. And the police may think that too, and that's just not something that they're telling everybody. But the reports say the police said she was quote unquote hiking on the Glen Boulder Trail, and that could be maybe not something the police said, but something people yeah. have extrapolated. But that's the one thing I'm almost positive of in this, that she was not hiking on the ground. Well, a lot of times what you'll see is um, somebody will ask in like in a press conference or something, do you think she was hiking? And they'll, they won't say yes and they won't say no. Right. Right. So then, then or they'll, they'll say something like she was, fa- well, she was found off the trail and uh, it's a possibility. Right. And, and then, then people, it becomes yeah. right. Um, and before concluding on Louise, I just want to talk about someone else who I came across while researching this Sherry Lynn Roth, who I mentioned earlier. And she was killed on the Sawyer Pond Trail in August 1977, about 20 miles to the southwest on the other side of the Mount Washington Valley. Sherry had the misfortune to be killed before the internet was around, so I believe she's been largely, but not completely, forgotten. There's a website by her family dedicated to her, SherryRoth.com, and that's S-H-A-R-I-R-O-T-H.com. And it has some old newspaper articles and stuff. And it's funny how people are so quick to jump on some imagined connection between Louise Chaput and Maura Murray. The sad truth is, as I said earlier, it's much more likely there are assholes out there who kill women and are never caught. Not just one or two guys hiding out in the dark, cold woods waiting to pounce, like I said, but people all over the place who see the opportunity and take advantage of it. You know, much more likely than someone driving three hours from Quebec. In fact, before Sherry Lynn Roth moved to New Hampshire um, nine months before her murder and before she got her degree from Syracuse University in 1976, she went to, wait for it, UMass. So maybe there is a more American. No, I'm kidding. Um, because Maura Murray went to UMass, yeah. but I'm I'm just kidding. Even though you say, say you're just kidding, you're I know, I know. New. In any case, Sherry's nude, strangled body was found about 50 feet off the trail because the bad guys tend to drag the victim off the trail, right? Just like Louise. The trail was about a mile long from Route 302 to Sawyer Pond, and they found her about halfway down. They said while the trail was heavily traveled, they believe the assault happened far enough off it that it may have gone unnoticed. And also, I think the guys who do that, they have it down, and they're very quick with their, um, you know. Her her car was found in the trailhead parking lot on Route 302. Sherry worked as a counselor at the Mount Washington Valley Women's Health Clinic in North Conway. Her friends, and she had two roommates, said she was also concerned about women's issues, particularly sexual assault and rape, and was trying to start a rape crisis group at the time of her death. She was also an avid hiker and had worked in Olympic National Park in Washington State as a guide the summer before. She spent a lot of time in the woods and hiking, and she was an amateur photographer. Some reports said Sawyer Pond was a rowdy place frequented by motorcycle gangs. Quote, I think there was just a bee's nest there and she ran into it, her friend Mary Jean Baker told Greg Melville. The New Hampshire Union leader um, reporter who wrote the August 27, 1977 article. That's the only thing I can imagine. So apparently Mary Jean does not imagine. And you you never knew this Greg guy, right? 
No, no, it was before my time. I started working there in 1986, so... Well, he could have um, still been there. Yeah, he could have. The name vaguely rings a bell, but... Maybe her friends would like to believe something like that happened, but I only saw the reference to rowdy motorcycle gangs in one article at the end, and it didn't seem to be anything the police were taking seriously. I can't see a motorcycle gang doing this kind of... You know, it's just the trail she was on does connect Route 302 where she parked and the Kankamagas Highway, which is a scenic highway through the mountains. And both are popular, not only with motorcycle groups, but all sorts of people going to the mountains. And it was August. So there's going to be a lot of motorcyclists. And there was in New Hampshire. I wish I could remember the details. It was still kind of going on when I started working at the Union Leader. But there was like in Laconia, which is south of there and stuff, like motorcycle gang problems but i think it was it wasn't like they were going around raping and murdering people i think they were drinking and doing drugs and getting into fights and being loud i think yeah. were was basically the issue in august 30th 1977 union leader story by gloria poliquin who i did know she was a longtime north country conway area correspondent said the response for information was great and the ag's office was working on leads Um, which now, how many years later, um, I guess they went nowhere. A year after Sherry's death, a first anniversary article in the Middlesex News, and that's a Framingham, Mass. newspaper where she was from, near where she was from, I think she was from Sudbury, quoted Assistant Attorney General Peter Heed, (laughs) and he later, when I was working in New Hampshire, got in trouble for, like, there was some, like, party, and he was doing some drunken dance on (laughs) a... He did like this strip tease dance on a table at some, I guess, AG party. And um, the the good old days. And anyway, he said the investigation had come to a standstill. Quote, all we can really do now is be actively aware and alert for a break or some new lead. It's too bad. It's a difficult case. And I wonder, I mean, that was 1977, but I wonder if there was any DNA ever. Yeah, I wonder if they had cut from there. evidence, and who knows if it's still around. Right. Yeah, it was a long time ago. The story also quoted a friend of hers, Beth Harris, who said in a letter to Sherry's parents that Sherry was a sensitive, perceptive, gentle woman. Quote, it's one of the tragedies of humanity that someone can have the power to snuff out the life of a person who is contributing so very much. Aww. And ain't that the truth, right? Yeah. Now, I don't know if Louise Chapu's friends and family still come down every year as they used to to commemorate her life and bring attention to her death. There aren't a lot of recent stories about them except ones about that podcast, which, again, since I don't know French... When her friend Petrowski talked to the union leader a week after her murder, she said, I hope they find the person who did that. I've lost a friend. I would have liked to have spoken to her before and told her not to go hiking alone. I'm going to miss her. She is going to be missed by a lot of people. And while these types of crimes are often called cold cases, they aren't cold to Chapu's family and friends. Her daughter Constance told WMUR in 2011, when the crime is solved, she'll feel relief and ready for the next step. You know, we're always back to that story because it's not cold. He's still running. Her friend Pinot in the 2011 WMUR broadcast said, They call it closure. That's a nice word in English. I'm not sure we have it in French. And you know what? I'm not either. (laughs) But maybe it would bring closure. I'm not sure. I don't want to hope for it too much, but it's to prevent it from happening again, that's for sure. Mm. And so that is the story of oh, Louise Chapu. Oh, 
I wish they had found... You know, hopefully with the DNA, they'll... You never know. And, and like, with the Sherry Roth thing, I wonder this because, you know, of the, you know, once DNA testing became a thing, I was thinking this because I'm watching a lot of wrongful conviction stuff on TV now. Like, so these guys who have been in prison for years and years and years who get released because they can match the DNA now. So they must save. So even if a case is considered closed and somebody's been in prison for 30 years, they save the evidence? Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. But one thing about this case that that I always think of, and it's not this great, like, profound thought or anything, but just how fucking random and plentiful these are. And it's not... This whole narrative about, oh, she went hiking alone in the woods or she made this bad choice. It's just that there are fucking dirtbag people, usually men out there, who will randomly kill women. Yes, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time, Yeah, is what I think. And, yep. I, and I think most of the time stuff like this is a crime of opportunity. And I do think it was someone similar, just some dirtbag driving down the road. Or maybe he saw her at the... Uh, Appalachian Trailhead parking lot and just said, oh, there's this woman alone. Right. And and I know that they she was fully clothed, but we don't know right. what happened. It could have been a robbery where he wanted to kill her too. It could He just could have decided he wanted to kill somebody. Who knows? But people have to get away from the whole narrative of you're putting yourself in danger if you're alone. I know. You know, you're... Um, you shouldn't have to worry. That you can't go somewhere. It can happen to anyone, anywhere. You know, is kind of the thing. There's probably nothing she could have done to make herself safer in that situation. But this whole narrative, I think people like the narrative of her mysteriously going on this other trail into the woods. And that's what sealed her fate. Because it somehow makes it more explainable. But I think it's, like I said, it's much more likely it was somebody driving up and down the road or in the parking lot or saw her at the AMC Center and not this, you're not going to get a lot of luck hiding in a lightly traveled trail as dusk is falling, waiting, just waiting for a single woman to come by that you can rob or kill. You know, I don't think there's like there's like some crazy hermit on the trails killing people. I think it was I I'm picturing a pickup truck. I could yeah, be wrong, but but you know, I'm just picturing a guy like the one yeah, in Liz's Highway 21 thing. Yeah, there she is. Nobody's around. Like I said, it's that combination of remote and accessible. You can mm-hmm. be in one of those parking lots and a car may come by. Like if it's July or August, there's going to be a little more traffic. In November, a car may come by every five minutes. You know, and it, only, it only takes a few seconds for someone to grab right. you and drag you in the woods. Right. Possibly yeah. disable her in some way. You know, it's either. It's not like you're going to see a car there. Someone's going to see a car there and say, gee, I wonder if that person's in trouble. The car's parked in a parking lot. You're going to think, oh, look at there's somebody hiking. I mean, right. Or whatever. You know? Right. Exactly. So, anyway, that's Louise Chapeau. And finally, we have gotten to the end, and hopefully. <laughs> We're both going to do this recommendation for the same thing. We're both, our negative Nellie's watching, we're both going to review How to Fix a Drug Scandal, which is on Netflix. It's a four-part series. Um, I thought it was a pretty easy watch. I think I watched it in two nights. Should we, should we explain um, how negative Nellie's yeah. works for those who um, may be new to our podcast? 
if you want to. So what Negative Nelly's watching, we, we based this on, we used to listen to a podcast called Black Girl Watching. Amber Knight. Great. She had certain criteria that she graded on. So we came up with ours. And the reason we call it Negative Nelly's is because we're kind of negative. Yeah. If you haven't noticed, everything starts out with a 10. And then we just we um take away points for yeah. different things and so as we go there are 10 different 10 different what do Cri- you want to call criteria criterion so a summary of the documentary series is it's about mostly about sonia farrah she was a lab uh, technician first of all you should say it's the same topic as our okay. what the anyway, it was episode twenty nine. It's our most updated ever yes, episode. It has been a very updated episode. So episode twenty nine, the title is Wicked Bad Chemistry. Yeah. It's about Annie Dukin mostly. Um and her uh she was a lab technician in Boston and she falsified results to convict people. And I don't want to go into the whole thing about about that because I want you to listen to the podcast. I did mention Sonia Farrakh in that episode. She was in Western Massachusetts and was also falsifying around the same time when she, she was caught a little bit after Eddie Dukin was in, on trial. This documentary series focuses more on Sonia Farrakh. She was also falsifying evidence and it was because she was doing the drugs herself. <laughs> But more about how the state tried to cover it up, mainly because I think, well, there were a lot of reasons, but one reason was they knew that it would open a Pandora's box to find out that all these cases that had resulted in convictions were were compromised and it was going to cost a hell of a lot of money, which if you listen to our episode on it and all the subsequent updates it has cost millions and millions of dollars for the state of massachusetts so they tried to kind of cover it up and it's a really good documentary yes so let's go down the um the list list bad reenactments i thought the reenactments were good and the way they did them was different than a lot of things well first of all they had ferrick's grand jury testimony and so a lot of it was a woman playing her so they had a woman playing her like sitting in a witness box and somebody playing the person questioning her so that was part of it and then they would show her in the lab but it wasn't (laughs) it wasn't doing doing her drugs but (laughs) it wasn't the long played out bad reenactments because yeah, it was just little Im- um, kind of impressions of things right and they got yeah. somebody who kind of looked like her only yeah. looked a little better because it's hollywood or where whatever would and also um we should mention that it's aaron carr who yes made i was this. just gonna say who's the same documentarian that did the one about her first one was about the cannibal oh, cannibal cop and then she did mommy dead right right yeah, okay. so anyway but i was gonna say as far as reenactments go neither of us are big fans but there are bad like ones and then there are not bad ones and so they probably could have done without them but right i think they were fine narrative cliches i'm gonna not take off any points for that what you think about that if there were any i can't remember and looking at my notes i didn't take any away so the next thing on our list is racial and gender stereotypes sonia and uh andy duke and were women you know and sonia was is gay and annie yes. is um, she's a second generation asian yeah they didn't 
make a big deal out of either of those things. And they also treated a lot of the people convicted of crimes affected by this were Hispanic, you know, drug addicts and stuff. I thought they treated them with respect and like human beings and did not treat them like cliches. So I thought it was good. So there wasn't any cliches. Although they could have, if they had maybe delved in a little bit more into what maybe that meant for the fact that they were women or something about their background made them like maybe being a second generation American made her want to Annie. Yeah. Annie Dukin, or maybe, you know, who knows, but whatever, I, am not going to take off any points for that. Uh, Lack of good visuals, definitely a no, the visuals are great. And I think especially showing Western Massachusetts, the landscape, um, how different it is yes. from Eastern Massachusetts. Yes. And they showed the places where they really were. Like, I hate it. Like, this happens a lot of with a lot of, like, true crime stuff in, yes. that, in Maine, where they'll <laughs> where they'll just show Portland or Bangor or something yeah. when it's... Which is nothing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they showed the actual places in this. Yes. And that was, I thought that was helpful. Missing pieces, I'm taking off a point. Mm-hmm. I would... I'm tempted to take off two points. You can take off as many points as you want because we, this is our thing. Okay, well, I'm going to take off two. I don't know why they focused mostly on Sonia Farrick except for that they had that lawyer. Well, it's, and and I think the reason they focused on her is because the narrative, the story was how they tried to cover up what she did because of what Annie Dukin had did. And that was kind of what the story was. And that lawyer, Luke, was yes. Ryan had spent all these years and he was kind of the protagonist. So yes, that's why I, I can understand her. that. But I would have liked to see more, even if it made it you want to more Annie. I thought that her story was extremely interesting. And I thought the, the contrast of the two and the fact that they happened so close in time to each other and they were so different, but they were doing the same type of thing and getting away with it and they both basically got away with it for a long time and i also felt that more background on some of the victims of what both of these women did because it was bad right and that and it caused heartache and pain pain pain. you know it ruined people's lives and we did see some of the victims and they focused on that but you know i would have liked to see more about the effects of what they did i agree with that and also, I'm going to take away a point. This could go under a couple different categories, but I'm going to put it under missing pieces because basically that's what it, either the documentarian gives the people watching too much credit for intelligence or there was just too much to cram in. But one of the big issues I had, actually, I'm going to take away two points, too. Um, no, because the more I think about it, it's, it bothers me. At one point... Sonia's mother said, well, you know, Sonia says, you know, the drugs work, so obviously they were guilty. And nothing ever really countered that, but I felt it made it sound like everybody who got convicted because of her malfeasance was guilty. And that's just not how our criminal justice system works. For one thing, a lot of people plea because they don't have the money for bail and stuff. And you don't know that that all the drugs were, you know, because she wasn't just using the 
evidence yeah. drugs. What one of the problems was like she was stoned like on heroin yeah. or meth or whatever the hell her drug of choice that day was in doing these tests. Who knows if they were accurate or not. I think that they kind of let slide innocent people may have been convicted and in fact I remember one of the Yurani Dukin updates when they had to start letting people go and stuff. There was a guy who had a cashew yes. in his pocket and, and the cop it said it was crack cocaine. Yeah. And because he was this older black guy. So, no, they were all guilty. And I felt that there wasn't enough emphasis on how once a poor, disadvantaged person, particularly a minority, is busted for drugs, whether they have them or not, the system immediately is against them. And in a lot of... People spend a lot of time in jail. They shouldn't be. Also, I feel this is a big missing piece, and this could have come under storytelling too, but Sonia Farrick was no better, and in fact, in a lot of ways worse. I mean, there was a lot of empathy, and Luke Ryan, the the defense attorney, had a lot of empathy for her as a drug addict, and I understand, and I have empathy for her, or sympathy for her as a drug addict. But why you're so, a No, that's why I changed empathy to sympathy. It was almost like she's somehow different from these guys. And actually she's a hell of a lot worse because yeah. not only was she a drug addict just like them, but she was fucking around with a lot of people's lives and these guys yeah. are just living their lives and have a little dope in their exactly. pocket. And she only got 18 months because she's a white woman, a white middle class woman, and also because they the just wanted to get it done it. with. Yeah. And so some of these poor guys, the amount of time and the ruin to their families, it did look a little at how their, these guys' lives were affected. I felt it still allowed her to be on some higher plane. Yes. Like her mother saying well, that Sonia said they're all guilty anyway, blah, blah, blah. I don't feel like that was ever effectively countered. No. Inaccuracies and anachronisms, no. Uh, I thought it was pretty accurate as far as, I don't know. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. A storytelling, I'm taking away a point. They had talking uh, heads. Uh, too many. Too many. I don't mind it when it is somebody relevant, like a reporter that's covered it, or, or that someone has something new to add. I don't want people who have nothing to do with the case putting their two cents in. Like that guy, that. that guy from Rolling Stone, who was one of the producers. Him. And it had one of my, and I'm taking away a point too, my peeves where you have like three people telling you the same story. Yeah. You know, we only need one person. We don't need this guy to say a sentence, then them show this guy to say a sentence, and then this guy, especially the Rolling Stone guy, he was superfluous, yeah. telling us stuff we already knew, we had already seen. He wasn't, from what I could tell, he wasn't there. I mean, they had a lot of journalists in this, which on one hand is good, but on the other hand, it's, and it's good because they had a Boston Globe guy for the yeah. any stuff, and then they had some Western Mass journalists. You can have too many People? Well, and if, if if possible, I would prefer to see if they have the source material, like a clip from court. Right. Um, that's what I want to see. Me too. If there's a reporter that has to clarify something or, or, or say, oh, and at the time the judge was saying this, I was looking at so-and-so's face and they were doing this or I noted that this was happening. Well, I can understand that, but I don't need someone saying, and the judge said, blah, blah, blah. Well, first of all, we either just saw it or we could have seen right. it. Right. When something happens. 
happens. And then you have three people telling you what happened when you just saw the thing happen. It reminds me of those cheesy, like, 70s and 80s and stuff documentaries where there's a bunch of people who are just like us, except for their celebrities, saying, oh, and then, you know, the trouble with tribbles and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's like you were watching it on TV just like I was. You know, I don't need that shit. I know. So, yeah. So, are you? I'm taking a point off. Me I too. You have more to add to that. No, that's. Okay, so freshness, I did not take off any points. I thought that this story, I know that Annie Dukin was covered quite a bit, but I still don't think nationwide it was covered as much as it could have been. And Sonia. I, I didn't see her covered as much as Annie. Well, at that's because she was out there in Western, Western Massachusetts. Massachusetts. But, so I thought it was a very fresh story, and I was glad that they brought it. And also the way they told it, the no. whole the whole thing yeah. about how the the state lied, and there was yes. a lot of prosecutorial misconduct, misconduct that yes. never nobody ever had to pay a price for. Repetition besides the talking heads. Well, so I'm, I'm taking any points off. Well, even that. though I took a point off for for storytelling because of that, I'm also because I hate it so much taking a point off <laughs> as repetition because I I really don't want to see three people in a row telling me what we just saw. Yeah, I, it's it's I a agree. waste of time, it's boring and it's annoying. Thank so you. Yeah. Beating the drum, I'm actually taking a point off because I felt could have beat it a little more, especially like with you were just saying about the prosecutorial misconduct. Those prosecutors, the Western Massachusetts prosecutors, fucking committed crimes. They are still lawyers. They're still members of the bar. They didn't get punished at all. They lied on the stand. They hid evidence from that super cute lawyer, Luke. Yeah, Luke. he was cute. Luke Ryan. Oh, he was yeah. so cute. Yeah. They and they they also said bad things about him. No, but they they those are serious fucking crimes and they didn't get punished at all. I don't think it was emphasized enough. And and just like what I was saying before about the people's lives that were ruined by this, I don't think that was emphasized enough. So I'm taking a point off because I think they could have beat the drum a little bit more. I do too, and I'm taking I'm just taking half a point. There was some wasted stuff. Like, I hate, like, a lot of these documentaries when they're winding up towards the end and the story's been told, you know, and then they have everybody raising the glass of beer and yeah. and kind of reminiscing about it or talking. To, and I hate, I, that part I find boring, too. I felt like that time could have been used better to beat the drum a little bit. I would have liked to see more about how much this cost the state of Massachusetts, yes, exactly. how many cases had to be vacated. Maybe they mentioned it, but it, it needed to be shown. I feel like the prosecutorial misconduct, which was mentioned and talked about, blah, I felt it needed to be more emphasized. Yes, exactly. Because um, so, what they did was just as bad as what Sonia oh, and Annie it did. It yeah. was horrible. And no one gave a shit because it was all these Hispanic people and black people. Right. No one cared. And so once again, we have the case where my final score is 5.5, which is a much worse score than some much worse six. things have gotten. But it's good. And, yes, um, I recommend it. I recommend it's it. It's very good. And, and it, one of the funny things I think about our rating system is, like, it's very good, <laughs> but it's a topic that had a lot of things I have feelings about. Yeah. So I feel more strongly about the way things were done and said. Although that fucking three people talking about the same thing, I don't give a shit what 
the documentaries about <laughs> i'm gonna take points away for that i think that if you if for listeners or any of our listeners that hadn't haven't listened to episode 29 of us should if they've watched this documentary i think you'd enjoy it or vice versa if you have if you have listened to episode 29 you you'll know a lot you'll feel really smart when you're watching this documentary because thanks to me and all my updates yeah that's right you will know a lot but i mean i really did like it but i think i just it made me very angry it did um on behalf of and not so much at annie and sonia even though well they were allowed the system allowed them if if the system had been working right if the system had been working the way it did and that's one of the kind of things with the missing pieces with annie is that i don't think they explained enough what really was going on over there in boston and how she was encouraged Yes. by the prosecutors i mean they kind of do yeah, but, but to, to do what she was doing and how it kind of fed her need for approval and stuff like that and which is kind of what you were saying i, I think mean, they did have that one part where she had that man uh, i know i know implying that that cute uh prosecutor had the hots for her. yeah the cute prosecutor <laughs> who had no idea how the justice system works because he doesn't like being a defense attorney fuck him the reason you're defense attorney isn't to get bad guys off the hook the reason you're a defense attorney is to defend the fucking constitutional rights of the people who are going through the justice system and the whole fact i know they weren't probably having an affair but the whole fact that he to me he's just a symbol of what was wrong that allowed annie dukin to get away with what she did that they don't understand these are people's lives and this is a justice system that needs to be respected and needs to work for everybody instead of just putting people you think are bad and don't like in a, who are minorities and people of you know people of poor means and stuff into prison because they're probably they probably suck anyway which i i I got the feeling even him is he was so depressed being a defense attorney and it's like well if you give a shit about the law and justice you should be glad you should be like luke ryan who's cuter too (laughs) hopefully this will be the last time we have to do this. this. But I will say that I am working on a very interesting one. And Ooh. I'm not going to tell you about it. I can't wait. But it is an old-timey one. Because oh, good. Because he did something a little bit different. Uh, good. And there was one I was actually going to do if this had come out a month ago, like if it was supposed to, that would have been timely, not because of the COVID, but because of something else. But I'll still do it for my okay. next one, which will be, what, in September or something? <laughs> you know, if we were if we were better people, even with all these delays on the recording of this, I would have still been working all the time on the one that i'm supposed to be doing just so i'd have it ready well you know you're trying to homeschool your kid Uh, deal with our adult-brained parents in their 80s you know i mean you've got a lot on your plate i'm working three jobs i can tell you right now homeschooling fucking sucks yeah and i don't need to be shamed by the fucking teacher well from what i read because thank god I don't have a kid that I know of. (laughs) But from what I read, many parents feel like you do and just don't sweat it. And your child is a very creative, intelligent child and she'll come out fine. Well, I think we came out fine. I can kind of 
sympathize with the teachers because I'm sure they're feeling pressure. Like they're like, oh, people are going to think I'm not doing anything. And right. I gotta, you know, I understand that. But still, just leave me the fuck alone, please. Yeah, I, what, I'm too stressed yeah. out. I'm still working, too. I yeah. honestly don't know how some of these other people like what if you're a nurse or a doctor? It, I know. How schooling your kids? What are you doing? I, I know. know. I feel for those people. I know. At least we have jobs and we're working yeah. for now. At least. But anyway. Anyway. Well, uh, uh, thank you for all for listening. Yeah, thanks for your patience. Like we said at the beginning, this is the first time in three and a half years we've ever had to do this remotely. That's hard. Well... Um, it's easier, it's easier than, it's easier than sitting in a car in the Target parking lot and Topsum. Hey, <laughs> Actually, one good thing about COVID-19 is it's made sound issues this universal thing. I saw, yeah. Tam, I think it was Tammy Duckworth on MSNBC oh. today and you couldn't even hear a word she was saying. Oh, this is horrible. Oh, but you know what? But, and then it, but, but, but. But you can find us, Crime and Stuff Online. Um, yes. I'm trying to update it. But, you know, I've been very busy with the COVID. You can tweet to us anytime. Or email us. Some people email us. We have an email. We have our email, Mo? Crime and stuff. Crime and stuff at gmail.com. And it's not an ampersand. Crime and stuff at gmail.com. I think so. Welcome your emails. We do. We have a Facebook page, which it isn't a group. It's just a page that you you can like it. And you can't do an original post, but you can respond to any of our posts. And and you can send us messages. Yes. um, And and stuff. Stay tuned after the beeps. We have a promo for a friend of ours in Oklahoma, Sooner State Podcast. Thank you for listening. Yes. And then after that promo will oh. be our outtakes. If you. If, Not that we have that many because we really don't mess up. Well, actually, often. actually, it's something a little different. Well, I don't like bloopers anyway. I, I've always found them boring. Who cares if somebody's messing up how they say a word? I feel our outtakes are more just kind of little gl- looks into our souls kind yeah. of. But this is actually a montage of us trying to do this podcast for the last month it's not like a long it's not like 50 minutes of i don't want to hype it too much because you know usually we don't even mention our outtakes so but but anyway thanks for listening everybody thanks for listening and we'll be back soon yes we promise hey crime and stuff listeners Cece here And I'm the host of the Sooner State True Crime Podcast. We focus on cases based in my wonderful home state of Oklahoma. And since the term Sooner actually refers to the state's very first true crime, Teeters in the Land Run, Oklahoma is definitely a crime state. Sooner State True Crime can be found in most podcast apps or visit our website anchor.fm slash crime state. New episodes are released twice a month. Follow us on Twitter at Crime State for upcoming episodes and more. So come away with me and discover my crime state on the Sooner State True Crime Podcast. Yes. Ooh, we're recording. I'm so excited. Can you hear me now? Can you hear anything? Good shit. Three, two, one. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Hi, I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff.
the podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. But it sounds good. It sounds good. So let's hope it ends up. We're gonna sound. We're gonna sound better than we, if ever, we ever. If we ever get this done. Ooh, that sound is getting really. I wonder what's what causes it. And as usual, we have we've had our usual technical problems, but hey, I don't think it'll be too bad. Yeah. Oh, and we've had worse. What, okay. Are you, you sound very like you're breathing deeply. Are you doing no? like deep? Okay. Not really. Wait a second. No. <laughs> Sorry, let me sit up. I'm putting a thing behind me. That's uh, what she said. It's a noise that kind of like sounds like it's, um, ugh, I can't think of the word. It's just like a little, like, almost like it's not connecting. Like or a like a short feedback. Blip. Yeah, well, like a yeah, feedback. No, not a feedback, just yeah. a, like a little blip, blip, like a little interruption. Nah. Anyway, so we found a software ringer that, for a variety of reasons, I thought would be a good way for us to record. You know, we could have used like Skype and stuff, but the noise, I think it's the cat. So, and then we had some technical issues, including us recording this several days ago, and then there being some glitch and deleting the whole thing. But I think that third time's the charm, right? Okay, are you ready? Yes. We have been trying to get this done for like, what, two weeks now? I don't even know. You say? I don't know. Interesting. There is nothing. There's a, there's a lamp. Can you move the lamp? Well, then I won't be able to see. No, I can't really move the lamp. I can move myself, but I'm in my room and there's like... I, I, I understand that. I'm just wondering what's... But okay, are you ready? Yes, I am. Even though, what you it was doing that thing. It's with your voice. It just. I wish I could explain what it sounded like. Uh, Okay. Well, if it keeps doing it, it was doing it the other time, and you listened and said that it wasn't on the recording. Okay. Hopefully this time, maybe it didn't upload right because we had a bad connection. Who knows? But if it does, and then if it sounds okay, we can just pick up where we left off or whatever. Okay. All right. Okay, let's start. Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. (laughs) Fuck. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. You ready? Don't say yes. Don't say yes. Like, like it's a, it's a, it's like this unreasonable question. (laughs) Don't say anything. Don't say anything until it's your turn. Don't say anything. Okay, let's just start over. Let's start over. Let's start. Okay. That's true. And also for the first time ever (laughs) in our in our more than three year history, we're recording in separate locations. Yes, we are. Though this is our millionth attempt over the last two weeks to record this episode. Yes, it is. We've had a yes. we've had a variety a variety of technical issues, some unrelated yes. to others. Yeah, but a we, bunch of different ones. But we think we have it going going now. We think we're <laughs> I think we've got so. it down. Except for Mo. Do I what? sound okay? Do I, does my voice sound okay to you? Yes. Uh, you just went out and came back what in. What happened okay, to you? Okay, are you there now? Yes, you went you're, out. You're, you're, I'm here now. Why are you going in and out? 
<laughs> it, I think it's something on your end. Why do you always think it's on my end? Because I'm not doing anything differently, and it sounds either. like it's I'm on your end. I'm just sitting here. Okay. Am I going in and out now? No. Okay. Then I think we're all set. Okay. Maybe when you maybe when you were positioning yourself, you know, it shifted a little or, or something for a I second. No, no, because you're see, it's just like, but it doesn't matter because it you, it doesn't matter. It just did it. It's yeah, it just did it again. See, I didn't hear myself do it, but I heard I've heard you do it a couple times. Like it, it's got that thing, like it's not connecting that little blip. So I think it's our connection, but we're still recording. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's two different things. Yeah. She's like, yeah. Are, are you ready? Okay. Yes, are I'm ready. ready. The podcast. You would do if you but... had nothing better to do. And this is the first time ever we've been rec- we're recording from separate locations. Yes, but it's not the first time that we've tried <laughs> to do this episode. No. This is what, like the, the fourth four? or fifth time we've we've oh, had technical we've had technical issues every single time. A variety. We actually recorded the entire episode and then um there was an issue downloading. I'm using the app Ringer to to record it for a variety of reasons it was the best one for us and it still is. No, I know. I think it's just the app. I can't believe there are no reviews that complain about this because we haven't been able to get a recording for like two weeks of trying. And, uh, you know, if it had worked, it would have been great. Fuckers. Okay. Yes. I can't wait to hear it again. Gross. <laughs> no shit. No, I don't think they did either. What I'm saying is, yeah, it's scary. It only recorded your half. We have to do it over. Because if we have to do this one more fucking time, I'm going to fucking kill myself. Don't kill yourself. I I won't actually kill myself. But I do not want to have to read this script again. I I don't blame you. After tonight. (laughs) I just want to get this over with. I know, but we can't just phone it in. Ha, ha, ha. I get it. Our, our fans have been waiting a long time. They really don't. I think they've moved on. 